Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. There are a variety of ways that you fundraise and gifts come from all sorts of places. At times, one organization can be so caught up in your mission that they make gifts to you as well, one nonprofit to another. And when a perfect storm comes to town and causes catastrophic damage, many times churches are some of the first people to step up with donations. But when the storm clears and the news crews have left, it's what happens afterwards that makes the difference. And in the instance that we'll be talking about today, it was truly a perfect storm. Now, today's program is going to center on a specific incident that caused the nonprofit to form and address a long-standing problem in the community it serves. But there's so many lessons that all nonprofits can learn from this specific incident. Our guest at the center of it all, Dr. Errol Buntsman. Dr. Buntsman has a bachelor's degree in real estate, an MBA from Arizona State University, and a doctoral degree from Fordham University. He's been responsible for planning and overseeing the development of industrial parks, office buildings, and housing projects. He's chairman of the Immokalee Fair Housing Alliance in Florida, and also serves as president of the We Can't Have That Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to using education to help break the cycle of poverty and to support disaster relief efforts in Immokalee, Florida. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I do need to tell you that I am working with Errol on a project right now, but the story is so compelling and something that nonprofits can learn from that I wanted to invite him on the show. Errol, I am so glad you're able to join us today on Impactability. My pleasure to be here. I'm very familiar with the story about the Alliance, all of the great work that it's doing, but I'd like to give our listeners a very short starting point to how the nonprofit got started so we can use the story for the context of our discussion. So, Errol, let's start with a storm named Irma. You remember it. I remember it. Tell us how a hurricane named Irma got things started. Unfortunately, Irma was very memorable. It was in 2017, a Force 4 hurricane came into Florida and went right over a town called Immokalee, about 30 miles east of Naples, Naples being one of the wealthier communities in Florida and in the United States for that matter, and Immokalee being one of the poorest. Irma went through Immokalee. It uh, caused a tremendous amount of damage to buildings, trailers, houses, just caused a lot of unfortunate havoc. So the problem with the storm was that it made some residential areas, residential housing, unlivable. And that's kind of what started everything for you, because as we talked before, you saw the need for disaster relief, but then the underlying need was, where do these people go? And where they go wasn't so pleasant. Right. The hurricane caused destruction of old trailers and shacks and even some good recently built homes. And that really exacerbated the problem. Mm-hmm. So once the disaster assistance efforts on an emergency level were addressed by disaster relief organizations, faith-based organizations, and other not-for-profits, 
they realized as a group that the housing problem was so severe that there was hardly any place for people to be able to go. And it became clear that the lack of safe, affordable housing was the single most significant factor that was preventing low-income workers in the Immokalee area from escaping from poverty and exploitation. And that's what we decided to address. Tell us how the churches got involved the second time. I mean, they were there the first time in helping to restore order and rebuild, etc. And they helped you in the disaster relief big time. But now they were going to help in a new way. Right. After all of the emergency needs of food and water and medicine and diapers and things like that were addressed, we asked for a show of hands of how many of the organizations that were there, churches, disaster assistance organizations and not-for-profits, were aware of the severity of the housing situation. And almost everybody's hand went up. We then asked how many of them wanted to do something about it. And everybody's hand went up. So then I asked why it hadn't been done. And as we went around the room, it became clear that disaster assistance organizations, many of whom are owned by church organizations, like Presbytery Disaster Assistance, UMCOR, which is the Methodist, the Disciples of Christ Disaster Assistance, the Lutheran uh, Relief, and others, had been involved in rebuilding New Orleans after the horrible flooding there and in Houston and Puerto Rico. And so I asked them, why had this problem, which had been existed for decades and is now much, much worse, why hasn't it been addressed if they all cared about addressing it? And the answers became very clear as we went around the room, that there isn't property that you can buy. At that point, I said, okay, if there was, if somebody could find it, is the money available? And everybody, or almost everybody, raised their hands and said that their organizations would definitely help if you know, there was a way to solve the problem. So for the nonprofits listening in our audience, tell us how a nonprofit can find a faith-based organization that they can partner up with. I know sometimes it might take a storm, but then other times there may be other ways. What, what do you think? Without a doubt. The way to do it first, before you try to identify a faith-based organization, whether it be a a not-for-profit or a church or a disaster relief organization, is to determine what the why is. What's the problem that you're addressing and why should it be addressed? That's critical before you can do anything. The second step is another why. Why do you care? Because if you don't have passion for what you're doing and aren't committed to it, you won't be convincing talking to anybody about it. If you don't care, why should they? And there's a third piece to the why. Why should that church or that faith-based organization care? Different organizations have different missions that they're interested in. Their membership may have different causes that they're interested in. Some people focus on cancer research, some on children's problems, but you can't identify which ones to go to until you have the why. Once you've determined the why, 
the why of what needs to be done, the why you're involved in it and other people should join you, and the why that the faith-based organization that you're looking to help you, then you can start blocking and tackling, doing the hard work of researching and going not door to door, but church to church and talking to people. You can do some of that online and you can look and see what are the causes and the missions that they're interested in and to see if they're interested in your mission directly or indirectly and put together a case statement of what the problem is, why it needs to be addressed and how you're going to address it, what you need in order to address it and that you have or are assembling a team that has the expertise to be able to accomplish the task. It's just hard work that needs to be done. You can accomplish that by going to the church and talking to the pastor. You can accomplish it by going to the church and talking to the head of missions and asking them for a minute for missions, an opportunity of a few minutes, three or four minutes to address their congregation and tell the congregation about what you're doing, about what the problem is, why you care about it, and see if you can get your vision shared by the mission committee or individuals. Because in any church or faith-based organization, the church has some money, the missions have money, and individuals have money. And you're never going to know where it's going to come from ideally from all three. Yeah. I mean, basically what you're saying, Errol, is tell your story. Yes. And, you know, sometimes it starts by you're talking to somebody and meeting somebody and then developing a relationship with them. And you share what you're interested in and what you're doing and why. And often in those discussions, people indicate if they attend a religious uh, institution or not, if they go to church or they go to synagogue or they go to a mosque. And if they do, then they can be your ambassador to tell your story. But you only want them to do that if they share your vision. They see the problem, they care about the problem, and they're passionate about addressing it and solving it. You don't want an ambassador that isn't passionate about what you're doing. You don't want them to do it for you. You want them to do it with you. That is a great point. I love that. We're speaking with Dr. Errol Bunsman about his experiences as the co-founder of a nonprofit and how they partnered up with faith-based organizations to raise funds for the organization. We're going to pause right now for a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk how the why fits into your fundraising campaigns. You're listening to Impactability, the nonprofit leaders podcast. I'm Joe Turner. We'll be right back. One of the biggest challenges facing nonprofits today is securing grants. Where do I find information on grants? How do I write a grant? And how do I submit the grant? And then, of course, the dreaded midnight deadlines. Hi, I'm Teresa Stos, and I have been there and done that. At Sukup Strategic Solutions, we have a team of expert grant writers with years of experience writing hundreds of grants for nonprofits just like yours. Visit our website today at SukupStrategicSolutions.com and schedule a free consultation about your grant writing needs. That's S-O-U-K-U-P Strategic Solutions 
www.thegrantsocial.com. Let's work together and get the grant that your nonprofit deserves. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. We're speaking with our guest, Dr. Errol Bunsman, about grassroots fundraising with faith-based organizations and a fantastic story. I know you agree with me. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to have another edition of Coach's Corner, so stay tuned for that. Now, Errol, I've known you for about a year now and I've always been captivated by your story. I mean, you're a successful businessman. You've either started or acquired and successfully turned around eight companies, but you put all that aside to do some incredible work for an extremely worthy cause. So the question I have is basically, why are you doing this? I mean, what is the motivating factor that has you so passionate for this cause? That nobody should be forced to live in horrible conditions. In my life, I had the privilege of having lived for part of my life in wealth and part of my life in poverty. I worked as a migrant farm worker from the time of 13 to 15. There was a high school dropout and had the luck of getting the help with a learning disability, which I had called dyslexia, to overcome that and be able to go back to school after learning to read as an adult, to get my high school equivalency, an associate degree and a bachelor's degree, and then a master's and eventually a doctorate, and escape from the cycle of poverty. And I guess not wanting to see people live in horrible conditions some of which I lived in as a youth, people can escape from exploitation if they're given a helping hand. What are some lessons that you've learned along the way that you can share with our audience, like some do's and don'ts in terms of approaching faith-based organizations and the grassroots efforts that you've started that have really come full circle and are really being successful for you now? Well, the most important one, I think, is that you have to secure the donor before you ask for the donation. You want to build a relationship. So I guess the best way to do it is to apply the principles of transformational leadership, where you want to inspire a shared vision, that they see how their vision can be accomplished within accomplishing the vision that you have and empower them to act, provide them the tools that they'll need to share with others, such as a brochure that describes visually and in text without being too wordy, what the problem is, why it needs to be addressed, how you're going to address it, who's addressing it, what you need from them. Try to prepare a short video of three or four minutes. It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but you can give the message. One of the things I learned when we started doing a video, we thought it was going to take 10, 15 minutes. And we had all kinds of footage. But when we got the help of a professional videographer, he edited the thing down to three minutes and 14 seconds, and it conveyed all of the message. So those tools are needed. Great advice. That is some great advice. Some of your fundraising success has come from some amazing in-kind gifts. How do you get to the companies and businesses that can help with their in-kind giving? Uh, the best way that I found is through accountants and tax lawyers. They're all representing businesses, or most of them are. And when it comes to their tax advice to those businesses, they often share with their clients 
opportunities for them to make in-kind contributions because it is very tax advantageous. The same thing can be done for donations of stocks, and not with corporations, but with individuals, where a tax attorney can point out and an accountant can point out to a client that has had a very successful year that they could donate stock that they bought at a cheap price and is now elevated in price and get a tremendous tax advantage in doing that. Usually those discussions are most effective towards the end of the year, October, November, December. The other way you can do it is through asking your architect or engineer before you hire them if they will help you with the project, and you can do it with the general contractor also, by having them ask the bidders for work on the project to make in-kind contributions. And that's very effective, but only again, if they share the vision, if they buy into the why and they care about it so that they're a good ambassador when they talk to somebody that's gonna be providing cement asking them to make a donation to buy into the why i love that your story is very specific for our podcast but i think our audience has gained some really valuable insight today on how to find other organizations that might share in your vision and how you can help one another it's been great talking to you errol thank you for being a guest today on impactability thank you Time now for another edition of Coach's Corner. This is where we take the questions that you send us, and it could be absolutely anything from something very simple going on at your nonprofit that you just want another opinion on, or it could be something major that you can't agree on or don't know about, and you want to ask our impact coaches. We're here to help. They are here to help, and that is what Coach's Corner is all about. Today, we've got a great question, and our guest coach is Dr. Lou Trena. Lou, here's your question. How does my nonprofit build a major gifts program? On Coach's Corner, you have five minutes to answer the question, and your time begins right now. Thank you, Joe. Um, I think what I would recommend is that they first need to determine if they really need one. If they're raising the money they need to raise with other fundraising vehicles and with the current board that they have, then why would they need a major gift vehicle? So I wouldn't do it for the sake of having a major gift fundraising vehicle in place. I would do it with, um, I, would, I would make sure that that organization really has a need for major gifts. And so what percent of the money are they raising with events? What percent are they raising with grants? What percent are they raising with annual giving? You know, if they have a strong communications program in place, you know, and they're, they're doing their virtual media, um, if that's all successful, then maybe they don't, they don't need to change things because if you, if you, bring into the equation major gifts, suddenly you have to look at your board leadership. You have to look at uh, your committees. You have to look at your current donor and prospects list. You have to look at your staff. And the director needs to look at themselves and ask the question, do I have enough time to do this? Because it's going to take a lot of their time. You know, presidents of university have been asked a question, you know, what time do they spend raising money? And, you know, you can answer 60 to 80% of their time raising money. So, so I would first ask the question, well, why do you really want to you know, do you really need to do this? If they're if they're fine doing what they're doing, then I would say that it's it's not needed. 
Uh, if they feel that they have to replace money or they're growing and they need major gifts to make that happen, then I would have them do some kinds of needs assessment to, to see, you know, really how much is that? So let's say it's 20% of your goal uh, that you want to raise with major gifts. So whatever that number is, now you got to put together the fundraising vehicle. And so you'd want people on your board then that can make major gifts. Okay. It doesn't have to be all of them because you're only looking at maybe 20% of your income. You're probably going to need to hire a major gift officer because I don't think you can have a person doing both major gifts and events and, and annual giving because they have put different hats on. You've got to have a board that has the relationships that primarily comprised of individuals that represent major corporations, you know, in your, in your community, working on that, being on the board. And you have to have people that really love going out. And so you, you're going to need to look at having, bringing somebody on board that can raise major gifts. And if you're small, what typically happens is the executive director then says, okay, uh, I'm the one that needs to do it, but somebody has to pick up and do all the work that I've been doing uh, in other areas. Dr. Lou Trina, thank you so much for being on Coach's Corner today. Thank you, Joe. Always great working with you. If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.